Are you a natural born writer? I don't know what a natural born writer is. Uh, I felt like I wanted to write for a long time when I was in maybe even in middle school and then and then high school. Uh, I didn't know if I could be a writer, but I the, my first inkling that I had talent as a writer was I went to a summer school at Andover Academy in Massachusetts. I was a public school kid all the way, but my parents sent me to this fancy private school for a summer program, and everybody had to take English composition classes. So the teacher of my particular English, English composition class uh, had us write our, our own poetry and stories, and this guy said, you know, you, you're a writer, you should keep doing this. And uh, I just listened to that, and little by little, it started to come out. Did you go home that day and proclaim to your parents? No. That you were a writer? Not. Oh, okay. No. It was like 1969, and I was more interested in going to Woodstock and doing things like that. Right. Abby Hoffman and things like that. No, the, oh. girl, the girls. It's all, <laughs> okay. all about the girls. Right, okay. <laughs> Forget about the protests. Yeah. <laughs> what is better, the burning desire to create or the burning desire to be a star? Oh, create. Burning desire to create is the, for me, the the concept of being a star. Just to hear you say that, it it just it just makes me ill. <laughs> I mean, if you become a star, how that's great, that's great. But when you, for me personally, I mean, I know maybe for an actor, they have that burning desire to be a star, and it makes them a star, and it makes them do their best work. But for me, it always starts with the work. So the burning desire to create, but also the burning desire to create something worthy. Not just anything. Something that you can, at the end of the day, say, yeah, that's, that's good. Well, I was going to your website, because you have a new book out. So doing research for your, your new book, which yes. I think just, just came out. Yes. Is that right? It's called The Way We Work. Oh, nice. Okay. On the job in Hollywood. And it's tales from TV writers? Tales, not only from TV writers. It started out um, as a book that would be about TV writers telling their stories because when you run writers' rooms, when you work in writers' rooms, and I did this for over 20 years, every single writer has many stories to tell about development hell, production hell, um, casting hell. There are so many kinds of hells that writers have to deal with. Um, and that getting those stories and archiving them was the original motivation for this book. And then it, it got beyond writers. I wanted to uh, include people from every job in the business. So there's above the line people, there's below the line people, and it's a really comprehensive overview of what it's like to work in Hollywood. We have a quote from Robert Town that you, that you put with a little picture, right. and it just said something like, the writer is the one that until they finish what they do, you know, sort of they're the uh, bleep a-hole that, you know, until they finish what they do, no one else has a job. No one else has a job. That's right. So, you know, Town's point of view, uh, as he states in the book, is that everybody, you know, is waiting for the writer to get his work done, you know, so they can, they can be hired and they can have a job. So, and what's more than that, that's another way of saying, and this is no secret, everybody knows this, that it all starts with the script.
if you don't have a script, not only can nobody be hired, but you can't, you have no work, you can't shoot anything. And it's also very important to have a good script, the best you can offer these actors and directors, because, um, you know, anybody can put words on paper, but to make them sing and to make a piece of work that's original obviously requires a, lo a lot of work. Well, that being said, so people are waiting for the writer to finish their work, but then once the work's finished, the writer can sometimes be the least important, unfortunately, in the eyes of the production. Is well, in, in film, this has been the case since Hollywood began, that the writer was totally dispensable. This is why these famous novelists came out, like Raymond Chandler, whoever, they came out to Hollywood to work in the movies to make some money. Um, but their scripts were you know, rewritten by other people, and when it was all over, it was unrecognizable to them, and they just went back to writing novels because that was really their work. And that has been magnified times 100 today. So, you know, you'll see maybe six credited writers on a finished screenplay, um, and there will have been 20 writers actually hired because the only ones who get the credits are the ones who, there, there's an arbitration now for every film that has multiple writers. So the Writers Guild arbitrates every single feature film, and, and they read all 20 drafts written by all 20 writers, and they decide which of those 20 writers will get credit. It could be two writers. If there's 20 writers, it's gonna be at least two that get credit. It could be two, it could be six, it'll never be 20, um, because they have the limit of, of how many that you can credit. But that's life in feature uh, film writing. TV is different, TV is different. And up until not that long ago, the writer was king. And if you were a writer, creator, executive producer, you had a whole lot of power. And people went to you as the go-to voice of the show. Now we have so many layers on top of the writers, people who do nothing. Uh, now there are some executives that are helpful and involved, but there's so many layers now built into the process. I'll give you an example. Um, you wanna do a show with an actor. An actor has managers, he has three managers. Um, there is a production company that the actor may have a, a deal with. And then there's the studio and then there's the network. So all of these people, the managers get credit as producers. They get credit, not only do they get credit as producers, they get a per show episodic fee for doing what? For being the manager of the star. And then there is a production company, maybe their production company, and they'll take a, a chunk. And then the studio will take a chunk, and then the network. And I've left out one other uh, entity that takes a chunk, and it's the source of what's going on in Hollywood today, and that is the big agencies and their packaging fees. And that's what this whole writers versus agents battle is about right now, that the agencies take these huge chunks of the budget for themselves so the show budgets are lower and writers can't afford to hire some of the writers they may want 
because the agencies are keeping the budgets lower so they can take their, their chunk. So that's my pitch for the writers. <laughs> you mentioned Raymond Chandler in the last segment, and he's an interesting guy in the sense that he actually left a lucrative career or he was pushed out of one to go further into his writing. But for most writers, whether they're TV writers, film writers, right. novelists, what sacrifices do you think one has to make to have a career in art? And I realize that's a broad term, art. In art or in, well, let's say your career is art, and art is really what you care about. Um, if you're a novelist, you pretty much have to get another job because until that moment that, and there's very few people who can do this. I write novels now after having a, you know, a, a pretty successful career in television writing. So I'm not counting on that for my income. The people who can make big money writing novels are the kind of writers who can create a detective character and run that character through many, many, through a series of books and crank them out fast and you can make a living that way. So, um, but still, you have to get to that point and you have to have another job until you get to that point. Um, as a writer for television, let's say that is your art, you have to have a number of sample scripts that people are going to like. Pilots these days is what they want to see, original pilots. And it's so competitive today that a lot of people are going out and shooting YouTubes of what, you know, maybe a 10 minute segment of what their idea is. And anything you can do to sort of distinguish yourself is important. And, you know, you have to look at your bank account, you have to look at the way you want to live, and just really. What I would say is you decide what, what lifestyle you can live in until you, you get to where you want to be. And also, speaking personally, I think you have to come up with a plan B. Um, one of the actresses I interview in this book, you know, when I, one of the questions I ask all the people I interviewed is, what, what's your advice to people who want to do what you do? And this one woman, who's one of the most talented actresses I know, told people to, to do something else full time and do this, you know, in community theater and do it for fun because it's gotten too hard. And this woman was on Broadway in Les Miserables. You know, she, she's really, really talented. So, you know, I would say that a plan B is important. And even if you wind up working a job you hate, carve out those hours to do what you love. Well, I mean, Dashiell Hammett, when you talk about um, detective not, right. I mean, he was a private investigator and then... Oh, yeah. It, it's interesting when you look at the two careers of Raymond Chandler versus Dashiell Hammett. Didn't right. Dashiell Hammett wasn't as financially successful in the end, was that right? Then, uh, that I'm not sure. Then Raymond Chandler, that. yeah. That's true. By the way, could you, do you mind holding up your, your book? It's a beautiful cover. Here it is. It's called The Way We Work on the Job in Hollywood. Beautiful. And uh, yeah, and somebody pointed out that they were really glad that the cover isn't all beauty and palm trees, it's more grit. <laughs> it's and the valley. Yeah. It's the valley, it's where it happens, and it's not glamorous as it happens. Sure. Uh, it's only glamorous if you get to that level and get to go to the parties afterward. Well, even Raymond Chandler and his, his, you know, talking about 1930s LA and all the corruption and, and 
and crime, and, and it wasn't glamorous then in the sense of some of the stuff right. that was happening in the underbelly right. of the town. And uh, I think in not just the, the, the crime and some of the scandals, but in terms of the day-to-day grind of you have a job and you have to get to it, and it's a pain to get to wherever you need to go. Yes, You've got to factor sure. in so much and find parking, and it's, it's... It is, and you know, speaking to the writers, when I got into this, there were far fewer people doing it. So I had a much easier time getting people to read my material. I, if I wrote a decent spec script, I gave it to a friend of mine who was on a show, and suddenly it would be on the desks of really important people, and they would call me in for a meeting. I mean, it, it's much harder today. Um, so you really have to do whatever you can do to kind of distinguish yourself, use every contact you know, and you know, for some of the writers that that I know and actors, um, they're not they're they do everything. So they're doing improv, they're doing voiceover, they're writing, and they're editing, and they're just trying to scrape together a life. And you know, if you're willing to do that, that's one way to go until one thing pops. When I was coming up, you concentrated on one thing, you learned how to do it really, really well, and that was your thing. And I and I would assume that I had when I was coming up some sort of time period in my head, and probably didn't actually, for how long I would it would take before I would do it, before I you know would say, hey, I gotta bag this and think about how I can you know get a job that has benefits or something like that. Um, but back then nobody had a plan or anything. I think you really need a plan today to you know figure it out. Well looking at your IMDB you have uh, enviable credits. I, I watched a lot of those shows growing up in sure. terms of Bosom Buddies, and right. Facts of Life, all that. Um, I spent a lot of time in front of the TV, so I, I just, you know, <laughs> it was it was sort of my babysitter at, at times, and I, I love those shows. But you're not in the TV world as much these days. I'm a little dipping my toe in. I mean, I, I'm at this point in life where if I can get to do what I want to do, I'm happy to jump back into TV. But it's harder and harder to do that when you've been out of it for a while. Um, and so what I'm doing is I have this, my first novel, Elevating Overman. Um, Jason Alexander did the audiobook for me. He wants to do this for Netflix or whomever. Okay. And so, you know, we have, we're trying to pitch that around. And if people want to do that, great. If people want to, do something else with me that I want to do, that's great, but I'm not going to go work as a hired gun on some show that I don't believe in or, you know. It, 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 when you get to this point, it's all about the quality of the work. So if somebody said, hey, Bruce, you know, we're, we're gonna do a, we're gonna go back and reboot Breaking Bad and do another season and we'd like you to work on it. That would be awesome because Breaking Bad is an awesome show. Um, but if it's stuff that I don't really relate to, I don't need to do it, so I don't want to do it. I'd rather go and you know continue writing my books. That being said, for someone just starting out, what's your advice to them if they know that taking something maybe they don't totally believe in, it could be it's not violent or sexist or politically wrong in their views, but they just don't feel the material's that great, but they need it as a stepping stone. Do it. Absolutely. I, I took the worst jobs ever when I started. And I write about that in this book of uh, the kind of shows that I had to work on, it, you know, and it, it, they were awful. 
some of them. I, I worked on this show called Webster. I love that show. <laughs> I used to watch that. You were, how, old, how old were you? Oh, um, yeah, I was okay. old enough Imagine to Imagine being a writer who wanted to work on Cheers and being offered, the job they offer you is Webster. So we always felt like third-class citizens. Can you take us to the first day as uh, the showrunner for Home Improvement? What was that like? Um, how were you interacting with the writers? Well, I, I knew all the writers. I had either worked with them in previous years or had hired them myself. And chances are, if I hired them myself, I had worked with them either, maybe on other shows. So that was all easygoing. But, you know, Home Improvement was like a juggernaut. It was a huge show. And it was a huge responsibility to be the showrunner. And it was my first job as a showrunner. Uh, once I found out that I had the job, I had spent a ton of time prepping for that first day on the job about how I would handle it, what I would do, what my approach to showrunning would be. And I was lucky because I had had a good mentor. The showrunner before me was Elliot Schoenman, and he had a very precise way of doing it. And so I took a lot from him and my goal in running a show was to get people excited about their own ideas, everybody else's ideas, and really make it a fun room. And when you make it a fun room and you value the other writer's ideas, great stuff can happen. And so, because I had been in the worst of writer's rooms and the worst of writer's rooms go like this, where they have eight writers and one showrunner. The showrunner wants to rewrite everything. So the, all the showrunner wants is people around to spit out stuff and, and kind of tell them how great he is. And this happens way too often. And at the end of the day, no matter how much work they do in that room, the showrunner is gonna take it home by himself and rewrite every word. And so you have a demoralized staff. Uh, I had no interest in having demoralized staff. I wanted other people's contributions because in comedy, that's what makes it better. You know, just one person alone can rarely make it as good as a group. There are exceptions. Uh, the show Fleabag is apparently written by one person and she's very talented. Um, but who knows? Maybe Fleabag would be even better if she had a staff. You don't know. So how long were you the showrunner? For, uh, for three years. Okay. And what was the latest you and your group worked, your team of writers? You know, there would be occasional really late nights. And for me, for us, a really late night might be midnight. Um, there are rooms that go later than that. And, but we always, my kind of, the thing that I strove for as a showrunner was no weekends, no weekends in the room because I had kids, I had a wife, I wanted to spend time with them. And when I was doing shows, even working for other people, I didn't really mind that much working the late nights during the week if I could get those two days off with my family. So that was, that was important. Would you also look at um, feedback from the audience and how would you integrate oh, that? Oh, Home Improvement was fantastic. They had come up before I even got on the show. They had this whole system down, and nobody else did this at the time. For the Wednesday run-through, we would read the script on Monday, uh, run through the show on Tuesday afternoon, and then run through it again 
for the network on Wednesday afternoon. And when we did our run through, we would bring in 20 people from the Universal Tour in folding chairs to watch the run through. So those, those people told us what was working and what wasn't working. And then by Thursday night, camera run through, the show was in great shape and we were good to go on Friday night. How would they deliver that? Would you sort of do a Q&A with them afterwards? It was all based on their laughs. It was all based oh. on laughs. It's not, hey, you like this? If, you're, if they're laughing, they like it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> it's not a sympathy laugh that you could tell they were. Oh, no, you can tell what's going on. Sure. Having worked on other television shows, you knew you didn't want to, quote, demoralize of the other writers. Right. You wanted to make them feel a part of the process. Sure. So what were you telling the fellow writers on Home Improvement while you were the showrunner? Well, I tell them, first of all, to come in with stories because that's part of their job. Um, the main thing in a show that I run or any show that is run well is that nobody from your staff should just shoot down an idea and say, that's not good. That is cardinal rule number one of working on a television show comedy. You always have a fix. And even if your fix is not the final one, or maybe not even the best one that you're going to get to, if somebody says, ah, you know, that joke's no good, that, that writer's not going to last in my room because that writer has to pitch another joke. That's their job. Or if they don't like a story, they need to think of something that, that they think is better. So in other words, you just don't be negative. It's all, you come at it to be constructive. So let's say we're, we're two writers in a right. writer's room and you pitch a joke and say, and then she falls down at the end. And instead, if I was thinking, wow, that's really bad, instead of me saying it, I would be like, or what if, that's what it. if, okay. What if, the key two words are what if. Yeah, because that way you're not necessarily insulting the last person who pitched, who might be insulted because they might say, oh, wait a minute, mine was great. <laughs> but if they've got to understand that, that coming into a writer's room, people are going to have a lot of different ideas. And the what if is so much better than the that sucks. So I would trade out the that sucks for the what if. And so then, how would the joke win out? If, if, if then another writer over here said, well, wait, what if she does this or whatever? At what point? That's the showrunner job. You decide when it's good enough, when you like it, and you know, you, you have to be the final word. So that, that really, what it, really is what it means to be a showrunner. Somebody, somebody has to have the final word, and somebody's got to take the heat when the network and the studio don't like the show or the star doesn't like the show. So the showrunner makes the decision and the star may say, that sucks. And then you have to face the music, how are you going to fix that? Um, but that's part of the gig. Did you ever get feedback? What, let's suppose you were the final say on the joke and you thought it was great and you were so proud and it backfired on you and you got letters or people were upset. You know, when I did this, it was before you know, Twitter and all this stuff. The letters went to the studios. I never saw the letters. But, you know, we would, we would do a final pass. The whole room would do a final pass on a script before it went to the actors at the table on Monday. And we turned in a script that we thought was great. The actors could hate it. 
The studio could hate it. The network could hate it. Anybody, you know, because it's a subjective business, anybody can like or hate anything. And um, I've been on shows where if the actors, if they read the script in advance or as they're reading it at the moment, if they see a line they don't like, they will tank it. So, in other words, they don't even want this line to have a prayer of, of winding up in the show. So they read it in such a way to make sure you know they don't like it and that nobody at the table laughs. So, so they sabotage it. Correct. Oh, wow. Are you almost grateful that social media, that instant feedback wasn't available or do you I wish- guess so, yeah. No, yeah, I don't, I, I don't need social media feedback for pretty much anything. I mean, because remember, we live in a world today where everybody is a pundit. Okay, so you have, you know, millions and millions of experts on what the United States government should be doing and what the president should be doing. And, you know, if you think about our lives before social media, you might read an editorial by a really experienced columnist analyzing the situation and saying, you know, here's what we should do. And then maybe the next week you'd read something by another really well-informed person saying, you know, I don't think so. Now we're, we're getting advice from every single person who has a phone. And you know what? We don't need that. We, we have plenty of experienced and talented people and it's great that everybody gets a voice and a part of the conversation. But at a certain point, it becomes like white noise. And, and that's why so many people get to a point and they say, we're turning it off this week or we're turning it off forever. I'm off Facebook. I don't have a personal page anymore or whatever. And, and they, they just get burned out on it. And if, you know, and I've experimented with this and not using it for a while. And I would say, and they've done scientific studies that people who get off social media are happier. So there you go. So once you knew you were going to be the showrunner for Home Improvement, you did a lot of research, you prepared, you show up, you're now facing this room of writers, most of whom you know. How are you dealing with that? And was it as you imagined? Well, first of all, I gave them all homework. It's like kids in school today now, they have to re do reading over the summer. Uh, my assignment, they had assignments. Their assignments were to come in with maybe four to six stories a piece or three stories a piece. I don't remember what it was, but everybody had to come in with and deliver something. And so already you have just a bunch of stuff to work with. I had stories that I brought in and all my writers had stories. So we had a lot to talk about. And um, so they had stories. And the other thing that you talk about on day one, really before you even get into the stories, is the arc of the season. What's going to happen at the beginning uh, in episode one of the season and what's going to happen in episode 22 or 24, however many we were doing. And once you kind of set up that general arc, then you get to the stories because the arc tells you where you want the characters to go. Um, so the stories that these writers come in with, they're not that worked out because first you have to decide on your arc and where you want your characters to go. But I'm pretty confident that all of us came in with stories that then actually did fit in with the arc or we could tweak to the arc and you know that's how we got started. So you, ideally you get started with just 
burst of energy and everybody's really excited to be there. It's the first day of work. People are getting paid to be writers in television in Hollywood and it's a privilege. How do you know you're keeping the story moving forward? Was there, were there times when you thought you were doing things that were great, jokes were funny, but then you stood back and said, the, the story isn't moving forward? Well, you know, in, in traditional multi-camera sitcom, there's always the tendency to do, to make it too many jokes and slow down the, the scene because you think you're being so funny with all the jokes people are telling. But it becomes pretty evident along the way if people are just standing around telling jokes and the story isn't being served. So, and then if you have a staff of good people, somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna say, hey, don't we need to get to this story point sooner? And could we cut this? So that, that's very common. Speaking of cutting, I'm thinking of, let's say, Three's Company. And sometimes like Mr. Roper would come in and it was just a look. He didn't have to right. say a word. And you already knew he was either judging Sure. Jack Tripper or somebody. How did you know sometimes said, you know what, let's just do it as a look? Was that when the actor was well, there? Well, Tim Allen, you know, when you work with somebody who the audience loves, you get so many extra laughs with looks like that. So, you know, as the show grows, you realize who's, you know, a look on a certain line, you know, is going to get a laugh. Um, so in Home Improvement, the thing that made that show a success, Tim Allen was a very successful comedian, but the thing that made the show a success was coming up with a worthy adversary to play his wife, and which, who was Patricia Richardson. And we knew that if we wrote a scene and he did something stupid and she gave him a look, the audience, especially the women, were going to go, they were going to love it. So, you know, you learn about those looks and, and what what they're going to what they're going to give you comedically. In fact, we did a whole show, a whole episode of Home Improvement called The Look. And what that was, one of the writers came in with this idea and it was based on just the look that your wife gives you when you act like an idiot. And so this whole thing was the episode was called The Look and it featured a very funny comic named Blake Clark and he played the owner of a hardware store in Home Improvement and his wife played by a very funny ex-groundling named Shirley Prestia and he would talk about the look that he would get and I guess we did stuff with Tim and his, his wife at home but with Blake and Shirley she would give him, she had one of those looks, she'd give him the look the audience would go crazy and then he'd give the look back and Tim was in the scene too, and he'd be looking at them, giving them the giving each other the look, and the laughs just they spread. They, I, I mean, no dialogue at all. The laughs every time the director knew when to cut from look to look to look to look, and the and the the laughter just built like crazy. It was a it was a really funny episode. Do you think that's what distinguishes a lot of new writers versus more seasoned? Is knowing when to, to cut out some of the jokes and to go to the looks? You know, it's what distinguishes watching a show grow because you don't know when you start a show what, what's gonna hit from which actors. So it's learning the, the whole thing. It's not just what's on the page, it's what's on the stage. So if the, uh, if the actors are really gifted physically and you start to see audiences 
reacting, or even in a single camera show, it, you can tell if somebody's reaction is just hysterical. And you know, you make a mental note of that, and then you start to use that, but it usually grows from seeing the actors work with the material. Now, forgive me, didn't that happen with a show that you did called Duet, where two stars started out as the main characters and then it was flipped That was a whole or? other oh. whole other bit of business. I mean, that was, Duet was on the, the, when the Fox Network first started and we followed Married with Children, which was a huge hit, and we did okay. Um, it, Duet was a pretty funny show. The audiences, uh, the, the studio and the network, they liked the show, but they felt that the two leads weren't as funny as these two side characters. So it was one of these really weird uh, situations where the two side characters became the lead characters of the show. And then one of the main characters stayed in the show, but one didn't. It was bizarre. It was really bizarre. And uh, that was the first sitcom, first acting job for Ellen DeGeneres. She oh. was in. The, she was in the spinoff of Duet called Open House, playing a secretary in a real estate office. Oh, I bet that was funny. And the other person, it was between Ellen DeGeneres and Paula Poundstone. Oh, and they wow. were both hilarious. How is an episode of television structured, and has it changed over the years? Well, it's changed over the years because more of the sitcoms are single camera. So um, in the old days, really at the beginning of the multi-camera, not the very beginning of Lucy, but let's say when I was working at Paramount and most of those shows would have maybe six scenes and you would, and it was only two acts. Today you have three acts and if you're still on a, on a network with commercials, you have well, you'll have this, I don't know, maybe it's even more than three. It'll be three acts with a teaser and a tag. So there's tons of commercials everywhere that, of course, people are, you know, zipping through. So in the old days, you just really wanted a great act break. So, you know, when you only have two acts, so an act break would kind of be a sort of a cliffhanger where you want people to come in after the commercial. That was the way that worked. So then, they started making the running time of network shows shorter. I think when I started, they were 24 minutes. Now they're probably under 21 minutes. So there's a lot of commercial time and they break it all up. So what I think the networks want is instead of one reason for people to come back, they want like four or five reasons for people to come back. And most of the time, honestly, it doesn't happen. Because if you're doing 21 minutes of content, how many cliffhangers are you going to have in 21 minutes of contact, content? So that's why if you watch a network show today, you'll see scenes cut off and you'll be like, God, that's so annoying. And, and because I got to get all these commercial breaks in, which is why people love non-network television because they can actually take a breath and, and not even have to grab the remote to, to go through the commercials. Sorry, what is a teaser and what is a tag? I'm sorry, teaser usually is a scene at the beginning, which is maybe, a, it can be anywhere from two to two and a half pages. It's just a little quick nugget. It, it may not even have to be on story. 
that is just before the main title or before the the first scene. It's something that's quick and pops with a big joke at the end that that grabs the audience. And a tag is pretty much the show is over and then they'll do maybe a one minute scene. You know, it, it could be after the wrap up, it, it's just something that might go into the end credits. So you want a big joke at the end of that too and then it goes into the, into the end credits. So this is all stuff that doesn't need to exist. It all has to do with commercial breaks. How does a new season of a television show begin in the writer's room? Well, it's pretty much like I said, it, it has to do with the arc of the arc of the season. Where are the characters in at point A? And usually they are where we left them off at the end of last season. And where do we want to take them by the end of the season? So if you, you know, if you know at the end of the season, you, the characters in your show, who are the stars, are in a relationship, and by the end of the season, they're going to break up. You have sort of the the beginning and end, and then the whole season is the building blocks of well, why are they fighting, and you know, do they get back together at some point in the season, and who else are they dating, and so. But you, you kind of decide where you're going to end, and then sometimes. You may decide where your ending is going to be, but you'll find so many other interesting curves along the way that you'll say, wait a minute, it's more interesting if they're together at the end of the season, but their relationship has changed in this way. Well, speaking of TV couples, why do you think Duet wasn't able to last, but then you said Mad About You was similar? That's yeah, a very funny, funny question because Paul Reiser was one of the people that they were going to, he was a possibility to star in duet. And I can't tell you, it may have been that they turned Paul Reiser down um, for duet. And then he went on to do Mad About You, which was a similar concept. But he and Helen Hunt was a, were a much more dynamic couple that the audience really followed. And, you know, our couple. They were good actors, but I don't think the audience could be as invested in them as the other couple. Paul Reiser also had been a, was a stand-up, so he was very, very funny. Really? So why? So do you think that his sort of star power or just sort of burgeoning star power helps carry that? I mean, why do you I, think one couple was embraced? Well, it all has to do with the chemistry between. I mean, the right has to do with the writing, and I thought our show was well written, but those two stars had great, great chemistry. Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser. And the supporting characters, they, the, the people who surrounded them were great. The writing was great. And they had the magic, you know, because every show that's a hit, you have to have some magical element. And they had it, and we didn't. Did you feel that way when it ended? Because I know, Mad About You hadn't, I mean, when Duet ended, were you as sort of, you know, Able to see it in this way? I was or? able to see it. I mean, okay. I've, I've always been a person, and, there's, and you, know, you talked earlier about stars versus the art. You know, is it what's more important to create or to be a star? Um, I think, as a person whose primary motivation has been to create, I've been able to have a pretty 
realistic view of the shows that I've worked on and how good they are and what the problems are and what, what works and what doesn't. And I think I had a very realistic view about the strengths and weaknesses of duet. And I felt that, you know, there were things about it that were preventing it from, from being a hit. Writers have to write whether they want to or not. Whatever is lurking deep within their souls has a mind of its own, spewing out words that delight us or make us cringe in horror. You said something about this at the Bombeck Writers Workshop keynote you did in 2014. Correct. Can you talk about that? Why, why do writers have to write? Um, I, I guess it's in you. And somebody made this comment to me the other day. They said, we were, you know, because I've been doing novels and now this new book, and they said, you know, we really admire that you're still doing this. And I said, well, I just do it. I do it because it's what I do. And, and but I've always been the kind of person, and one of the reasons that, in a way, I was happy to get away from sitcom is that... Um, I think when I feel like I don't have anything more to say, I'll probably stop writing. But as long as you have some idea in you that you feel is worthy, then you want to do it. And um, in this particular book, um, I have one essay in this okay, book. So I'll, 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 yeah. I'll hold it up one more time. Okay, The Way We Work. The Way We Work. Mm -hmm. And in this book, this book has 41 contributors talking about their Hollywood experiences. So my contribution, I wrote one essay out of the 41, and um, there are many people in this book who are far more famous than I am, um, but my essay is about working in sitcoms and having to basically kind of like put your writer's voice on hold, because when you work on somebody else's show, like Home Improvement, that is the creator's voice and Tim Allen's voice, it's not you. So you become sort of an imitator, a mimic. You've got to write the show kind of the best way it can be written, like in a way like it's been written before. Put your own little spin on it, but it's not you. So I'm at the point in life of being a writer where I get to write what I want to write. And and I won't. I don't think I want to write if I don't feel I have anything worth writing about. You had a long career in television, then you write two novels that are about sort of anti-heroes that are questioning right. the American dream. Correct. Why, why write about that? Um, I guess, well, first of all, when I wrote the first one, I didn't really know whether I was capable of writing a novel. And I just came up with this character who was about the same age as I was, um, I guess he was early 50s or 50. And um, he's questioning his life, and he does not want his life to go out the way it's been going so far. He's kind of been sort of a loser for the two first two acts of his life, and he wants the third act to be something, you know, that's worthy, that, that he could be proud of. So I, I didn't really know this at the time, but I mean, I knew that I was looking to do something new. Uh, my life had been, my working life had been successful, but like the main character, I wanted my next act to be something different. I didn't quite know what it was. 
So as I wrote this character, you know, the character started off as a loser and his problems were different than my problems. But as I got through the plot of the, the book, the character and I shared a lot of similar things. So it, it was really an amazing writing experience from that point of view. And then with Cascade Falls, you have it where the character's sort of up against the, the shadow of his successful father, of sort of right, his but that, dream it, life. It also starts in Hollywood. That, that it, It's about, I was really curious about this. Um, what happens to those people who have a Hollywood dream and then get involved, you know, they have a relationship because they want to have somebody, get married, and then they have kids, but that dream doesn't work out. So what happens to their life when they have to go to plan B? And what happens when they go to plan B and they're not happy with plan B and plan B has made, makes them miserable, but yet they've already taken this step into marriage and parenting. How do they, how do they deal with that? So, you know, I saw people around me who, you know, they were, they thought they were going to be really, really successful and they weren't and they were, and now they were married and now they had kids and what were their lives like and how do you make those lives good and, and how do you be happy with who you are? So there were so many interesting questions to explore there. What do you think it is that the people, because I've seen people that seem outwardly very successful, they don't think they are. I know two different people I heard say, oh yeah, well, we had to take our kids out of private school. And it was like this dreadful thing. It was like they had failed in life. When most people, it's not even a matter of being able to put them in private school. Why do you think people see their lives as failures? Because they're not on the cover of Variety? Well, is that being in LA, on? you're always, I mean, I mean, it, it's so obvious. Um, and the way the world is becoming, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, in a city like L.A., which does have a lot of problems with its public schools, and people see their friends being able to put their kids in private schools, and they, they want to do that as well, and that it becomes kind of a thing that, well, now I can't do that anymore, so I must be a failure. And they're not failures. They're no. just they're just regular people. Sure. Is it okay to be... I mean, did you get to a point where you said, I want to be doing fun stuff. I want to be doing stuff that fulfills me. And whether now I can walk into a room and people are going to really want to perk up and hear what I do versus me feeling fulfilled and maybe no one's heard of it is more important. I mean, did you get to a point in your life where some of that didn't matter anymore? Of people... Of people, sort of the, the outward Hollywood success. Did you get to a point oh, where... Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it made more sense for Bruce to be happy with what Bruce oh, was Oh, absolutely. Doing. And I, I was forced into that situation. Well, first of all, you know, I had done well, and then my first wife passed away, so I had to, I had oh. to take care of my children. Absolutely. So that kind of eye-opener, uh, you know, that changes things in a hurry. And you get your priorities straight in a hurry. And as I was working through that, um, you know, I had to think about what's the next step. Am I ever? Am I going to go back and write? I mean, I took took time off, and then when I was ready to write again, I didn't want to write sitcoms anymore. I mean, I, I did a couple of things, a couple of pilots, and I was just—it it was not a fun experience. And that's when I got into the novel writing.
And why did you want to do this book? Because it's not a novel. It's more of a Q&A This style. book I wanted to do because I got sick of sitting alone in a room. <laughs> um, and, and I was alone in a room when I did this too. Um, but the difference was I had to work with other people. I had to get other people to agree to be in this thing. And then I had to do the work of editing their work. And it was really fun. It was really fun to do, to do something different that wasn't all about me. You know, um, there are a lot of people who work in Hollywood. I mean, people similar to, to my level who write their own memoir. For me, I, I would never do that because, I mean, my, I've had some interesting things happen in my life, especially, you know, with my wife and all that stuff. But I just, I'm not the kind of person who would feel comfortable writing a 300 page memoir about me. It's not, not my thing. So um, it was really wonderful to be able to do all these little mini memoirs of people who also like me, maybe don't feel like they want to write a whole memoir about themselves. Maybe they don't have a whole memoir worth of stories, but everybody has a story to tell. And it was great to be able to include these people, especially the below the line people who never get to talk about what they do. I have a, a hairstylist, a makeup artist. I have an animal trainer talking about her job. And it was wonderful because these people never get their voices heard. So it was a great project from that point of view. So you got out of being alone in the room for a while to interview these people. Did you learn anything about yourself? Not just like so-and-so work with this star and this person. And, but I mean, in terms of, did you see similarity with all the writers and yourself? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the writers, and, and I kind of knew this, that all the writers have been through certain struggles with their shows. And, um, but you know, you hear everybody else's point of view and everybody else's individual story. And it just, it resonates for you. It's not yours necessarily, but you relate to it in a way that you go, ah, yeah, I can see that. So it, it was wonderful to hear other people's points of view. What do you think makes a great story? A great, to me, a great story is made by a great character. And that's just the way I write. And I'm not a, I never profess to be somebody who deals in, you know, heavy duty plot. I don't write detective novels. I, I, I just don't do that. So for me, you know, a great novel is a great character or a great set of characters. Set of characters, I think of the Brady Bunch. I mean, was there really one main character on that show? Was there, it was really more of the point of view of all of them, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. there wasn't like a main yeah. protagonist. Right. And but, but from my writing and from what I love, you know, it, it'll either be one character that I can just sink my teeth into, or, you know, it could be a number of characters. Um, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite writers is T.C. Boyle, and he wrote this book called The Tortilla Curtain about Los Angeles and the two different worlds of Los Angeles, the people who live behind gates and the immigrants who are living in the canyons. And this book was written, I don't know, 25 years ago. And it, it just so speaks to where we are today. And right. um, so the Mexican, there, there, there's a Mexican main character who's just trying to make a living. And then there are the, the rich people up the hill. And all of these characters are extremely well drawn. And the situation is just, it speaks to, you know, where we are today. I mean, it's just an amazing book. 
Well, you think about Chavez Ravine back in the day, yes. and there's some similarities to maybe they're not dragging people out as right. they did at that time, but the, it's not too far from it in True. some ways to try to make True. it. Uh, now, you wrote in one of your books about someone that goes to work for his real estate developer father. Correct. Yeah, and is sort of, you know, it's this very manicured, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in Arizona with right. fresh lakes brought in and things like that. So what is it about uh, that sort of looking at this idyllic American life versus that creative longing that attracts you? Um, that idyllic American life was interesting to me because it was fake. So in other words, these were people trying to build a tropical paradise in a desert and make it look like, you know, California or Disneyland or wh whatever it is. And what interested me about that was people's long, they, they so longed for that type of community that even if it was in the desert and were 120 degrees all year round, they could kind of fool themselves into thinking they were in Florida or California or in, in Hawaii, you know. Um, so th that was one aspect of it. As far as the creative life, that's a whole other question. I, I'm, I'm not sure how that relates to that. Well, why doesn't it work out for he and his wife creatively? Oh, in, the, in the book? Yeah, if you don't mind. I know that might be a spoiler. Yeah, it's a writer. It's very, it, I, I wrote this guy. He's a writer who just stopped being able to sell things or, or couldn't make it work. So yeah, so it came from my experience watching other writers who weren't as fortunate as I was trying to deal with real life. And because I kept thinking, you know, what if that were me? I mean, you know, I was lucky. It always takes a little bit of, I mean, I, I have talent, but you also have to have a little bit of luck. And if you don't, how do you live? What do you do? How do you, how do you come to terms with that? I know you're shopping around this, um, is, it, is it a television show for um, Elevating Overman? Uh -huh. Yeah. So how, because it's been a while since you wrote the book, how, how long have you been time ago. shopping? And you have someone, a huge name attached? Well, Jason Alexander, who did the uh, audiobook, wants to do this with me as a series. And, uh, you know, we're just, we, we only brought it to one place, and now we're in, in the process of thinking, you know, where, we, where else we want to bring it. And, uh, you know, he's a fantastic talent. Absolutely. And the thing that I love about it, I mean, he's, what was really interesting about the book is that I wrote this book and I wrote this character and then when the book was done, uh, I had a friend who was working with Jason on a play and Jason and I didn't know each other. So he was on doing Seinfeld, I was doing Home Improvement. We were both in the top 10, but we didn't know each other. But my friend was producing a play with Jason and I called him and I said, if I put this book in an envelope with a note saying that I was the executive producer of Home Improvement, I'm not some schmo off the street, would you give him this book to read? And um, so in the note I wrote, you know, you're gonna know by page three whether you like this or not. And um, so of course I didn't hear from him for months. And then three months later, I get this email, I love this, I wanna do this. And you know, we're talking about a movie versus a TV show. So now he and I are friends and he's gonna be doing this book event for me even though he's not in this book the way we work, he and I are gonna be talking about Hollywood uh, at this book at this place called Dynasty Typewriter. How do you shop around a show? Like what's your process, especially knowing that you have someone like Jason Alexander who wants to play the protagonist, correct? 
Yes. So first of all, you have to get the meeting and you will either an agent will get the meeting or Jason knows a lot of people. Sometimes he'll get the meeting. And then Jason and I will talk about how we want to go and pitch this thing. And, you know, in a case like this, it helps to have somebody like Jason in the room because Absolutely. he's a great presence. And, uh, you know, in addition to being quote unquote attached, he's actually in the room. So that, that helps enormously. You said earlier that you, in the uh, email to Jason or the note, you'll know by page three whether you like this or not. Has that always been your rule? By page three of a script or a novel, you know the writer's voice is either for you or not? I, I don't know that I have a hard and fast rule. You always want the beginning to, be, to pop. There's no question about that. But what I felt in terms of elevating Overman was that this character made itself known by page three, and that he, reading this character, would know right away. He'd know whether he liked the writing, because the writing was certainly distinctive to the way I write, and he would know the character well enough to know if that was something that he felt you know, intrigued him. What was your favorite interview out of your new book? My favorite, I have many, many favorites. No, that's a hard question. And, and they're not all interviews because the writers wrote essays because the writers, that's what writers can do. And people who are not writers were not asked to write essays. Uh, they were interviews. So I have favorites, you know, many, many favorites. So, um, gosh, there, there's so many, there's so many great essays in this thing. I have an essay by a screenwriter named David Kukoff who writes about uh, writing for Hollywood when all they wanted was high concept. And he explains the kind of high concept scripts that he had to turn out and writing one for the Olsen twins. And it, it was just, you know, these premises are just unbelievable. Um, but this is what people were paying for back then. So he wrote a great essay and uh, and then I had people, I have a whole chapter called The Icon, which is about people who got their starts in Hollywood who were lucky enough to work with people who were major stars. So I had somebody who worked with Orson Welles, somebody who worked with Martin Scorsese, and somebody who worked with Lucille Ball. And they talk about their experiences working with stars. What did you think of Sunset Boulevard? I think it's a Sunset Boulevard, the movie. The, one of the best movies ever made. You think it's a, it's still holds today in terms of not likability, but the story and what happens in this town. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe the screenwriter doesn't go live with the person, but in terms of, I don't want to say desperation, but that's probably the right word. Yeah. I mean, it happens. You, you hear about it all the time. And listen, I know about people who were big Hollywood successes, TV writers who made a lot of money and they thought it was going to go on forever. They spent it all and some of it went up their noses and all gone and really sad stories. Sure. For your new book, Bruce, uh, yes. you have something from J.J. Abrams. Yes. And he writes about endings. Yeah. Okay. So uh, in a weird way, that's the power because if you don't know and you're writing it, then that's what the audience is feeling. If it's clear to you, it's clearer to the audience than you want it to be. The power in great storytelling is going, ooh, I'm so intrigued by how this will turn out. So do you like being in the dark about endings to a story you're writing, whether it's a Here's what I like. I like about, I like having an ending in my mind. 
And then as I go through having the freedom to say, you know what, I think I want to try this and come up with something that you never thought in a million years you would come up with. And, and that, that is the greatest moment ever. So I'm writing a new novel now and I had an idea. I, I just finished like the second draft. I had an idea of how it would end, but there were parts of this ending that I never could have envisioned. And as I got there, it just sort of fell into place. And whether it's good or whether it's bad, I cannot tell you at this point. But all I know is that I was so pleased to find this surprising thing available to me based on what I had set up in the beginning. So you had a sort of a clear vision of how you wanted to be, but then... And, but then it, it, as the story unfolded, it got tweaked in different ways that were surprising to me and hopefully, you know, resonate with the audience. How many hours do you spend a day writing? These days, um, probably about four hours minimum. And then if I'm doing well, maybe a little more. Uh, in the TV days, it was a lot different. Um, when you're with your staff, you're there all day long. You could be writing for 12 hours, but you've got a lot of people around you um, and a lot of different voices. Uh, one of the things that happens on TV shows is that when you assign scripts to the staff, everybody goes off and writes their scripts and you usually have maybe 10 days to write a script. And during those days, you know, I, when I remembered writing my own scripts, I remember working for eight hours a day or, you know, or more, um, just trying to hone the script. You know, it, it helps to have in your mind, how many pages do I want to get out today and get them out, whether they're good or bad, you know, you can rewrite them get like something down on paper. You know, apparently Judd Apatow calls this the vomit draft where you just get it down and you don't edit yourself right away. You get it on paper because once it gets down there, trust yourself to know what shit, you know, and you'll get in there and you'll, you'll rewrite it and you'll make it better, but just don't block your mind from, from getting something down. So what goal do you set for yourself for your novel writing in terms of pages? In prose, about three pages a day. And sometimes it'll be more, sometimes it'll be, it's usually at least three. Are you better in the morning or night? Or? Um, you know what? Once you're, you're living your life and you have people that you have to take care of and all that stuff, it gets different because you're, you're a little more flexible. So I used to, would, I, I, in previous years I'd say the mornings but now there are certain days that I have my mornings I have things I do in the mornings so I'll start at one and I'm cool I'll go from one to five and you know try to get my stuff done and usually I do and it works. Robert Town writes in your book Bruce that people who read scripts whether it's actors directors producers etc usually have three questions will this script be any good as a movie Will it make me look good? Will I work again if I do it? How true is that and any thoughts you can add? Well, I mean, it's really true. Uh, there's one essay in the book by Elliot Schoenman where he talks about his life as a young hot writer. 
and he had been working on the show Maud with B. Arthur, and he'd gotten to know her husband, who was this director, Gene Sachs. Gene Sachs was best friends with Walter Matthau. Gene asked Elliot to do a movie with him. Uh, Walter Matthau said yes. He read the script. Everybody loves it. They love it. They love it. And then Universal gives the go-ahead. It's a, it's a go movie. And then Gene Sachs's last movie comes out and bombs. And Walter Matthau calls Elliot up. And Walter Matthau and Gene Sachs were best friends. Walter Matthau calls Elliot up and he says, do we need Gene to direct the movie? And the movie was Gene's idea. And Elliot said, well, yeah, I can't do it without Gene. And Walter said, well, you know, it was your idea, kid. And he said, no, actually, it was Gene's idea. Um, and so he was trying to get Elliot to throw Gene off the movie. And Elliot wouldn't throw Gene under the bus because he owed a lot to Gene. And then Walter Mather said, I, I can't do the movie if, if Gene's directing because his last movie bombed. And, and, and these guys were best friends. So, so there's Hollywood for you.